program. So make sure you stop by and check her out as you leave. Uh, also, if you have Bibles, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 2. We are back in our Apostles' Creed series. We were in the series, and Asbury happened, and we spent the last uh, month and a half, I believe, unpacking what God was doing in the world, in his church, through the Asbury renewal and revival. And so just to give you a quick review, the first way we talk about why beliefs matter. The Apostles' Creed is important for, you know, almost 2,000 years the church has held these core beliefs as the foundational beliefs because they affect our worldview, our identity, our behavior, and also our relationships. Then in the second week we talk about every soul, no matter who they are, no matter where they're from in the, the world, every soul is crying out for a father. And the Apostles' Creed affirms right away that he is our almighty God, our father. Then the third week, we talked about the virgin birth matters because it's the linchpin between the natural and the supernatural. And while without the virgin birth, there is no sacrifice of Jesus, there is no resurrection of Jesus, you, the virgin birth is vitally important. And today I want to hit on this fourth part, which is this. The Apostle Creed says, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, was buried, and descended to hell, which I'm not going to get on this week, but it's... The important part of he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified and died and was buried. I, I, I've been doing this for a while, and many of you know my testimony. I was atheist for many years, agnostic, whatever term is the appropriate term now. And the, the generation before me was so concerned with scientific evidence. Like most atheists had scientific questions and you know, empirical evidence and what about evolution and what about this, what about the age of the earth. And so a lot of you, if you're from that generation, you love the apologetics series. You loved apologetic books. You loved the proof of the existence of God and, and scientific and philosophy backups of it. Well, this generation is totally different. When I talk to people who are atheists or agnostic or have coffee with them, they're not asking me questions about science or biology or creation or evolution. Their questions always come back to two things. One, what is really love? And if God is loved, then, then I should be able to do what I want to do because God should affirm me and love me the way that I am. It's all about a definition of love and what love really is. But the second one is suffering. If God is so good, why is there so much suffering in this world? If God is up in heaven and he created all this, why is there death? Why is there anguish? Why is there cancer? Why is there sickness? Why is there school shootings? Why are there tornadoes? Why are there crime? Why is there violence? Why is there division? Why is there racism? Why is there poverty? And it all comes back to, if God is good, why is there suffering? Why would I believe in a God that allows so much suffering to happen? And I would even take it a step further with this generation. It's not even about physical suffering. It's about emotional suffering. This generation is so sympathetic and compassionate that they can't handle somebody suffering emotionally, even to the expense of, of physical. That's why with the, the whole affirming of transgender and all this stuff, it's about emotional suffering. Why would we want them to suffer living as a man inside of a woman's body? And they'll actually go through physical suffering to change or try to change their biological makeup physical suffering just to protect them from emotional suffering. Suffering is key. And if you don't have the proper view of suffering, you'll begin to blame God for it because either God will define your view of suffering or your view of suffering will define who God is. 
And I believe one of the things that happened during COVID was God opened our eyes back up to the world is a place full of suffering that we cannot control with politics, we cannot control with science, we cannot control with money or consumerism or materialism, that suffering is real. And so the Apostles' Creed takes us back and helps us have a perspective of the view of suffering that is correct. And so here's a couple of different views of suffering from just different world religions or world views. First one is Hinduism. So if you come from an Indian background or Hinduism, Hinduism view suffering through the lens of its punishment for deeds in a previous life, which is the word karma. So what I'm suffering, what that means is the previous me who was a cow did something wrong and now i got to pay for it. Or I was someone's dog and I pooped on their carpet, now I'm suffering for it now. That's the view in a very simplified form of Hinduism. Buddhism means you suffer because you desire for things and relationships. Meaning if you just didn't have any desires, if you just didn't love your wife, if you didn't just love your kids or love your, your mom or dad, and they, if they died, it wouldn't really bother you, you wouldn't be suffering. Or if you didn't love your house when a tornado comes through and you lost it, you really wouldn't be suffering. It's about desires and suppressing your desires. Islam is suffering as a way to submit to Allah. He brings suffering into your world to break you and make you submit to him and his worldview and his ideology. Sikhism, suffering arises from being self-centered, meaning because you're self-centered, you go through suffering because everything has to revolve around you. In New Age, spirituality, suffering is a result of not being awakened to your inner power. Like everything's on the inside. That means all your little gemstones and crystals you have, you're not awakened enough, so that's why you're suffering. Atheism, suffering is a byproduct of chance and is meaningless. Atheism believes suffering is real, but God is not, meaning there's no way out of your suffering. It's just a part of life. But Christianity has this totally different perspective. In Christianity, suffering has redemptive potential to bring good in us or within us and in others and in the world. Do you, do you see the difference? Everyone else has this view of suffering as, as the hand of God or the hand of life pressing down on you as this weapon of submission. But Christianity has this view that, that suffering actually can bring good out of it. Listen, that's what we're going to celebrate Easter. God brought good out of suffering. But when your viewpoint is suffering first, that since I'm going through a bad spell in my life, or I'm going through pain, or I'm going through grief, I'm going through sorrow, God must not be real. But when you see it through the lens that, that, that God is good and God is real and God can bring good out of anything, it changes the way you see suffering. Tim Keller said it this way, suffering is actually at the heart of the Christian story. From the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, suffering's a part of it. Not because God planned it. God created heaven and earth perfectly in harmony, in peace, in hope, in love, in joy. No sickness, no disease, no death, no sorrow, no pain, no violence, no grief. He created it perfectly. But as soon as man got involved, we've been causing suffering ever since. And the narrative of the Bible is man messing everything up and God looking to restore everything we have destroyed. And the promise of heaven, it may not remove the pains of suffering on earth. The gospel may not remove the pain of sorrow of a lost loved one for you or the, going through a, a spell of cancer or the loss of a loved one like 
you know, the, the shooting this past week in Nashville, Tennessee, where actually I went to school with the, the pastor whose daughter got killed. His mom was my fifth grade English teacher. His sister was on the basketball team with me at the school. I was actually in a school play with his sister. Like, the gospel doesn't take away that pain. But what it does do is it gives us a better lens in which to see that pain through. It gives us a better perspective to see this isn't the way it's supposed to be. It gives us a better perspective to see that God at the end of time is going to restore all things and renew all things the way he intended them to be. The gospel may not change everything immediately, but it does solve everything and heal everything eternally. That's what Hebrews chapter 2, it says this. I'm going to start in verse 5. It says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking, it has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little, for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, talking about Jesus, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet, everybody say yet, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Even though everything is in subjection to Jesus, we just haven't seen it yet. When will we see it? When he returns and sets up his kingdom on earth, you'll see every knee bow and every tongue confess. You'll see all of creation in subjection to his rule, to his reign, to his authority, and to his love. He says, yet, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So even though he's crowned in glory and honor, he was suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone in this room and online. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation Perfect through what? Suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I had, I and the children uh, God has given me. Verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. It's about you share flesh and blood with Jesus. That's what communion is about. You share in the flesh and blood of Jesus. He himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, meaning us. He helps us. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Everybody say every respect. That means he became like you in every single form and fashion. There is nothing you have been through that Jesus has not tasted. There is not a pain that earth has that Jesus has not experienced in every single respect. So that he might become a merciful in faithful high priest, in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Father, we thank you for your word. And I thank you for a suffering Savior 
who is now a merciful and faithful high priest that intercedes for us, who understands our temptation, who understands our sorrow, who understands our grief, who understands our shame, who understands our pain, who understands our temptation and all the things that are up against us in this world, that he can be at the right hand and intercede on our behalf. So Father, we thank you and we bless you in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. If you notice in this scripture how many times it refers to suffering, over and over again. And the suffering is always connected to humanity. That because he became flesh and blood, he suffered like we suffered. He suffered death like we suffered. He suffered temptation like we suffer. And so I think it's, it's really needed to describe what actually causes suffering. And so there's lots of causes for suffering, and many of them aren't God. So if you throw that up there again, one of the reasons they're suffering is because we live in a fallen, broken world. We do not live in the Garden of Eden. We live in a world that's full of sin, brokenness. Everything's destroyed. And in that fallen world, that is why earthquakes, tornadoes happen. That's why sickness and disease are here. And so many times we're suffering just because we live in a world that is broken. But that's one of the reasons God sent Jesus to begin to renew the earth so he can bring a new heaven and a new earth when he comes Again, but it's also because of uh, evil. Evil is real. No matter how bad we want to push evil away, evil is a reality. You cannot read the Bible and push away the reality of demons. You cannot read the Bible and push away the reality that there's evil people out there. That shooting in Nashville this past week was not a byproduct of the fallen world. It was the byproduct of evil. Only evil changes their identity, walks into a Christian school, and shoots a bunch of little innocent kids for no reason at all. I, this may say, that is not a mental health issue. That is an evil issue. And so you may be going through suffering because there is literally evil, demonic forces at play all around us. There's evil. There's also temptation. Temptation is the work of Satan to try to move you out of God's will, meaning you're already in God's will. But like Jesus was walking in God's will, walking in the perfect will, the enemy will try to tempt you to get you to step out of God's will so that you'll sin. So temptation comes in in many ways. It could be lust, it could be greed, it could be anger, it could be bitterness, it could be unforgiveness. It could be the donut shop on Florence Boulevard, which is the greatest threat of temptation in my life. Like it could be anything, it could be conspiracy theories that draw your attention and suck your hope out of you. Temptation is anything that tries to get you out of God's will. Trials are a work of God to move you into God's will. They're precursors, they're tests to see if you're in God's will, if he can give you more authority or more power or more responsibility. God always tests a man before he can use a man. So what you may think is suffering is actually God preparing you for something more. Job went through a trial. What was it? God wanted to bless him double time at the end of his life. Sometimes you go through suffering because God is trying to promote you. You have persecution, which is suffering for God's glory. Meaning that, you know, most of us in this room have never really suffered for God's name or his glory. But there's churches and people in Africa and Iran and the Middle East and Southeast Asia that literally are going through suffering just because they proclaim the name of Jesus. Listen to me. Just because somebody says something mean to you on Facebook, that is not suffering. 
Suffering is when your life is in danger, your family's life is in danger because you simply say, Jesus is my king. That is persecution. Consequences are suffering as a result of negative consequences or sowing and reaping. Like, it, it cracks me up sometimes. I'll have people talk to me like, Pastor, like, you know, the devil's just after me. You know, devil's trying to do this. Devil's trying to hold me back. And I'll be like, whoa, whoa, whoa let's stop. So tell me what's going on. Well, I got this charge with the charges. You know, it's not real. I'm like, hold on. Tell me what happened. And they start telling me. I'm like, hmm, I don't think, I don't think the devil's after you. I think you're actually on his team. They're like, what do you mean? So you're telling me it's, it's the devil's fault that Alabama lost the football game. You drank 12 too many beers, kicked your dog, got in your car, drove on the sidewalk down Florence Boulevard, wrecked your car into 306 Barbecue, then got out of your car running naked down Court Street saying, make America great again, and you get arrested, and now that's God's fault. No, there are consequences. You can't uproot the principle of sowing and reaping. If you sow negative behavior, if you sow negative choices, you will reap a negative harvest. It's just a principle of, of the kingdom. You, you can't bypass that. And so, so many people, they'll make really dumb choices and then they'll try to blame God or the enemy for them. And the problem with that, the only way you can get away around the, the principle of sowing and reaping is to repent from your sowing and uproot some things so you can get a new harvest. But the last one is discipline. Discipline is God will bring discipline in your life, which feels like suffering, because it's temporary suffering in God's attempt to try to prevent long-term suffering. Right? We do that with our kids. When your kids do something wrong, you'll bring some suffering either you know, through a timeout, removing their screen time, through a spanking, through being grounded, whatever. You're trying to cause temporary suffering to prevent them from living in long-term suffering. Right? Those are all things that we may suffer through. But the good news is this. God isn't the cause of suffering. He actually joins us in our suffering. In Hebrews 2, that's what he's actually saying. He's saying that the reason God came to earth in the body of Jesus was to suffer like we suffer so he could have a different perspective of what we're going through so he could have mercy and he could be a faithful high priest to release mercy instead of judgment. People ask, well, why is the God in the Old Testament so angry and the God of the New Testament so loving? It's the same God. The only difference is the God in the Old Testament had never experienced temptation, had never experienced grief, had never experienced sorrow, had never experienced pain, had never experienced all the stuff in life, and he comes to earth in the body of Jesus, and now he sees what we go through, and now he has mercy. See, the only people who can have mercy are the people who actually have been through what you've been through. Jesus has now been through what we've been through. Now when he intercedes, he's interceding from this place of mercy and compassion, not judgment. That's why it's interesting that we'll try to blame God for suffering when the God that we serve, our God suffered too. Allah never suffered. Buddha really never suffered. The Thousands of gods of Hinduism never suffered. Our God chose to suffer like us 
so he could join us in our suffering, so he could give us an escape and a solution and salvation out of our suffering when he returns again. The writer of Hebrews said he suffered in every single respect. Do you realize that there is not a single thing that you have suffered that Jesus hadn't suffered too? Not a thing. And I think in our, in our Christian deism, we think God is this faraway God up in the heavens and sitting on a throne that he doesn't understand. No, he understands. For 33 and a half years, his life was ravaged with suffering. Just the three and a half years of ministry would have been enough for all of us to quit ministry, probably commit suicide, and to stop. He anguished, he was ravished, and every single way he suffered. And here's just a few. Augustine, or Augustine said this, God had one son on earth without sin, but never one without suffering. Jesus suffered mental anxiety. He struggled with depression or anxiety or mental illness. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane was so anxious about fulfilling the mission of the cross, so stressed that he sweat blood out of his pores. Why? It was mental anxiety and anguish. Jesus suffered emotional trauma. It literally says Jesus wept. Jesus wept why he experienced grief and sorrow of losing his best friend Lazarus. Like He experienced all the losses we've experienced in life, yet he carried them in such a beautiful way. Jesus suffered physical agony. On the cross, his skin was literally ripped off his body. Hung on a cross to suffocate because he couldn't get oxygen into his lungs to push oxygen into his blood to push oxygen into his muscles and tissues. He experienced death. He suffered relational betrayal. The people he loved the most treated him the worst. Judas walked with him for three, three and a half years. Right next to him. In every miracle, Judas was right there. When Jesus was preaching, Judas was right there. And they didn't just preach and teach. They lived together. They walked the earth together. They camped out. They traveled. They journeyed from city to city. Judas was right there with him as a best friend. But yet it was Judas who kissed him to betray him, to murder him. Like if you think your family reunion is bad, just look at the inner circle of Jesus. Judas betrays him. Peter, his best friend, denies he even exists. Like he's been through it. But Jesus even suffered spiritual darkness. I don't know about you. Maybe you've had seasons where you felt alone, isolated, like the walls are caving in. You feel like God has abandoned you. He's left you. Jesus, even on the cross, cried out, Father, please do not forsake me. Tim Keller said, Jesus lost all his glory so he could be clothed in it. He was shut out so we could get access in. He was bound, nailed, so that we could be free. He was cast out so we could approach. And Jesus took away the only kind of suffering that really can destroy you. That is being cast away from God. He took that so that now all suffering that comes into your life will only make you greater. A lump of coal under pressure becomes a diamond, and the suffering of a person in Christ only turns that person into somebody gorgeous. 
he experienced suffering in every single way we have. Yet instead of letting it turn into something bitter or something dark or something broken, he turned it into something beautiful, salvation and redemption. That's why every other viewpoint or perspective tries to push all this negativity on God for suffering. God takes all that negativity and says, I'll take that death and I'll actually bring a resurrection out of it and bring new life, which you thought was lost. Do you realize that's the principle of the gospel? That every time something looks like it's over, God brings new birth and new life out of it. Every time it looks like there's a death, there's resurrection that comes out of it. Every time it looks like the enemy's starting to win, God uses what the enemy's actually trying to do to turn good out of it. Even when the enemy held the Hebrews captive in Egypt for 400 years, God used it to create this whole redemption narrative and create a whole new type of people on earth that had never been seen before. God is never stopped by the enemy's plans. It always helps him prosper. That's why as Christians we have redemptive suffering. Redemptive suffering is just this, that God can take our suffering and he will exchange it. He'll exchange our suffering. He'll exchange our brokenness. He'll exchange our pain to create something new in us, something new in others, and something new in the world. God actually takes it. There's this exchange that happens. Martin Luther, the reformer, calls it the great exchange. Where literally, you come to Jesus with nothing but brokenness. Nothing. You don't have good works. All you have is sin, shame, guilt, sickness, disease, worry, anxiety, depression, fear, hatred, greed, racism, whatever, divisions, slander, gossip. All we have is this negative brokenness and suffering. And we literally bring it to Jesus. We exchange it. We give him our suffering. We give him our brokenness. We give him our pain. We give him all our junk. In return, he gives us his Glory. He gives us his access to the Father. He gives us his inheritance, as it says in Ephesians 1, which is undefiled and perfect in every single way. He gives us all of his goodness for our brokenness. That's the gospel. That's why he suffered. He took on our suffering so we could take on his glory. And in doing so, that is what grace is. Grace is when you make a really bad exchange. He gets all our junk, and we get all his goodness. Dom Hubert Van Zeller said in The Mystery of Suffering, Jesus took upon himself, took suffering upon himself and sanctified it. He changed it from an evil to a good. He took death upon himself and removed the sting from it. Here was quite a new dispensation. Suffering and death still occupied an essential place in the general scheme of things but they were not to be dreaded in the way they were dreaded before. Jacques Philippe said this way, this is an absolute fundamental truth. God can draw good out of everything, both good and bad, positive and negative, for he is God, the almighty father, whom we profess in the creed. Drawing good out of good is not so hard. But God alone in his omnipotence, his love and his wisdom can draw good from evil. How? No philosophy or theological argument can explain it completely. Our job is to believe it on the word of scripture, inviting us this, to this degree of trust. In everything, God works for good with those who love him. Do you, do you understand that? Like, 
every worldview I showed up, every philosophy that's up there, all they try to do is explain suffering. But God takes suffering and wants to exchange it. Anybody could take good and make good. But only God can take evil and make good. Only God can take death and make life. Only God can take pain and make healing. Only God can take suffering and bring joy. It's this totally different dynamic. But the question is not if you're going to experience suffering. The question is how are you going to react when suffering comes? Like we all experience suffering. Like everyone in the world experiences suffering. It's not a Western thing. It's not an Eastern thing. It's not a European thing. It's not an American thing. It's not a Christian thing. It's not a Muslim. We all experience suffering in one form or another. And so the question would be, what lens do you see suffering through? Are you going to determine who God is based on how you feel and what you suffer through? Or are you going to allow your suffering and your pain to be through the lens of faith and trust in the Almighty God? Donald Miller said it this way, suffering ceases to be suffering when you have a redemptive perspective in the middle of it. See, I'm not suffering because of Jesus. I'm suffering with Jesus. It's interesting, and the only thing you can control in the middle of suffering, you can't control the suffering, but you can't control your attitude or your perspective in the middle of suffering. Uh, Last week when when the tornadoes came through, I was going through Plantation Springs, uh, I was checking on Pete Key. I checked on Mickey Ritchie, who's actually here. And, man, they were just, their house got destroyed on the backside of it. And I just walk up. And if you know Mickey at all, he's the happiest person in the world. I think he's high 90% of the time. But he was happy. I said, man, do you need anything? And he's like, he's like, he's like man, I'm, I'm, we're good, man. Just thanks for coming by. Like, everything's good. We got Chick-fil-A. You want Chick-fil-A? He was, like, trying to serve me. He said, we got coffee. We got Chick-fil-A. Like, and I was like, man, I'm just checking on you. What do you need? He said, like, man, I'm good. And he had this great attitude. And he said, I said, man, I just appreciate your attitude. Like, it's uplifting my spirits. He says, well, that's the only thing we can control. In the middle of suffering, in the middle where most people are blaming God, why, God, why? God, why is these tornadoes keep coming through Alabama? We can win every national championship in football history, but we can't stop a stinking tornado. Why? Why is it going to be my house? Of all the neighbors, why am I? No. You can't control those factors, but you can control my God is still good. Or you can be like Job where they tell your friends, say, just curse God and die. And you're like, you know what, that sounds pretty good right now. But Job, Job said, no, no, my Redeemer lives. And he is good. And so I'm just going to give you real quick six different tensions of when you suffer with Jesus versus when you suffer without Jesus. The difference what happens. Because it's not a matter if you suffer. It's how you suffer and who you suffer with. If you suffer with Jesus, you experience the positivity, redemptive side of suffering. But if you suffer with the world or like the world or without Jesus, you'll suffer the negativity side. And so number one is this. Suffering with Jesus results in a deeper intimacy with Jesus. But suffering without Jesus results in hostility towards Jesus. So when I suffer with Jesus, he draws me closer. When I suffer without him, I push him farther away. Paul said in Philippians 3, he says, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I will tell you, all of us in this room know people who have suffered 
And because they blamed God for it, they suffered without Jesus. And since they suffered without Jesus, instead of growing closer or more intimate with him, they become hostile towards him. If we really want to take it deeper, that most of the people that are hostile towards God are really people who are suffering and they don't think God is with them. And so when you have this perspective that I'm suffering, but I don't want anything to do with God, I don't want anything to do with him, it creates this hostility. And let me help you. God cannot be your deliverer and the cause of what you need to be delivered from at the same time. You can't blame God for your problems. It's like, I need you to deliver me from my problems. It doesn't work that way. Either he's your savior or he's your abuser. He can't be both. And Rob Bell, before he went off the deep rails, he did this video series called Numa. He talks about this in this video. Just this power of he was camping, he had his little son with him, who was a baby, and one of those packs on his, on his back. And they're walking through, and it starts raining in this campsite. They've been hiking there far away from their campsite, and they're trying to get back. This is storming, thundering, and lightning. There's this thundering and lightning. He just starts worrying about his son. So he pulls his son to the front, covers him in his own rain jacket, and he's trying to get back, and he's trying to talk these, these affirmations. Hey, son, it's going to be okay. We're going to make it. We're going to make it back. I know it's raining. I know it's thundering. I know it's, I know it's scary, but we're going to make it. And he keeps speaking all these words over him and over him. And he said, we finally get close to the, to the cabin. He says, hey, we're almost there, little buddy. We're almost there. And so finally they get inside. And when he gets inside, he takes the rain jacket off. And he starts thinking. He said, I don't know if like in 10 years my son's going to have all this post-traumatic stress from this storm. He said, but for me it was a time that I got to hold him close. And my voice was the loudest voice in his ear. Sometimes we go through suffering and God uses it to draw us deeper in intimacy towards him. And if we were all honest, many of us, the times we grew the closest to God was in times of suffering in which he drew us close. But number two, suffering with Jesus creates greater dependence on his grace. But suffering without Jesus creates greater dependence on self. So when I suffer with Jesus, even Paul goes to this thorn in the flesh. He's suffering and he's like, yeah, but my grace is sufficient. He learned that when he suffered with Jesus, no matter what he's suffering, he learns to grow closer and more dependent on God's ability than on his own ability. But when you suffer without Jesus, you only have yourself to depend on. And you go weary, you go tired, you get frustrated. Or C.S. Lewis said, God whispers in our pleasure, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to arouse a deaf world. That in suffering, you learn to lean on his grace. And I promise you, it holds you up every single time. But when you suffer without Jesus, the only person you can lean on is yourself. And now you're weary, you're tired, you're broken, and now you're blaming God. Number three, suffering with Jesus leads to connection with others, but suffering without Jesus leads to isolation from others. It's it's, it's interesting how two people go through the same thing, and whether it's depression or suffering, and, and some people lean closer into other people. And they get their strength through community. They get their strength through others. They get strength through other people. But then other people go through the exact same thing and they push away from community and they isolate themselves. And depression, that's the whole goal of depression. Depression is trying to get you away from community because that's where your strength lies. 
And so what happens when you go through suffering, the only response is if when you're suffering with Jesus, it draws you closer into people. But when you suffer without Jesus, it draws you deeper and farther away from him. And 2 Corinthians 3, uh, 1, verse 3, 3 through 7, it says this. Blessed be the God of our Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Do you get that? That when you go through something, God is comforting you so you know how to comfort other people. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Meaning that when you go through suffering, you are now able to connect with other people who go through suffering. And the two most powerful words you'll ever hear when you're going through suffering are the words, me too. I don't know if you experienced when you're going through something, loss of a loved one. You know, when Alicia got diagnosed with epilepsy, there's a friend I actually talked to yesterday morning that his daughter's going through epilepsy at the same time, and we actually were able to talk. And when I shared my story publicly, preaching at my home church, he had lunch with me, and he said, hey, me too. There's something powerful about the words, me too. Why? We can share in our sufferings, but we also share in our comfort. The, the, the author, Joni Erickson Tata, over 35 books, and many of you probably don't know her story. At 17, she was diving into the Chesapeake Bay and didn't realize how shallow it was and broke her back. At 17, since then, she's been in a wheelchair as a quadriplegic ever since. But she's written 35 books and she says, I wouldn't trade my life for anything. She said, out of my suffering, I've been able to help so many other people out of their suffering. Out of my pain, I've been able to help so many people experience healing. Out of my trauma, I've helped so many other people experience joy. Why? She allowed herself to suffer with Jesus and to connect with people through her suffering. Number four, suffering with Jesus develops character. But suffering without Jesus develops bitterness. Billy Graham said, suffering is part of the human condition. And it comes to us all. The key is how we react to it, either turning away from God in anger and in bitterness or growing closer to him in trust and confidence. Romans 5, 3, 4 says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces, everybody say produces. Suffering actually produces things, produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, that my hope is sometimes contingent, contingent upon how I suffer. It's amazing how so many people are bitter towards God. And the reason they're bitter is because they're blaming God for something the enemy has done. And God wants to be the redeemer and use what the enemy has done to produce confidence, hope, and character through what the enemy meant for evil. Number five, suffering with Jesus is temporary. But suffering without Jesus is eternal. You know, it's, it's, a, it's interesting to me that when Jesus describes hell over and over again, the people that think, well, there's no such thing as a hell. Jesus talked about hell a lot. It was always a place of eternal suffering. 
I worked with a guy when I was first got the Air Force. It looked like George Jefferson. He'd be like, man, this place, there's got to be a heaven because this place is hell. No, there's still a place called hell. But we have become so materialistic and we've thought our suffering is so bad on earth that we've lost sight how bad suffering is in hell. Like suffering in hell is actually eternal. There is no moment of reprieve. There is no breath of fresh air. There is no drink of cold water. It's, it's suffering for eternity. And the only reason you suffer for eternity is because you chose to suffer on earth without Jesus. When you suffer with Jesus, you may still go through suffering, but it's temporary. 2 Corinthians 4 says, so we do not lose heart. He was talking to the church losing heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us. There's that word again, producing, preparing. Preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient or temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Time are not worth comparing the glory that is to be revealed to us. Like, like I've never experienced childbirth. I told Toya, I got sunburnt, my ankles are swollen, my belly's getting fatter. I feel like I'm pregnant these days. I'm starting to look like I'm pregnant, but I've never given birth to a child. Even though they say I can these days, I've never tried. But I've watched her give birth. I would say giving birth is suffering. It doesn't look fun. It looks painful. It looks stressful. It it looks like it's full of all these thoughts and all this stuff going on. It's suffering. So how can a woman endure suffering during childbirth? It's because they know it's temporary and it's going to produce something better on the other side. And so when he talks about the scripture that is temporary, he says something better is coming. What he's saying is you can endure temporary affliction because the glory that's coming later on is going to be well worth it. And so we are so simple-minded, we forget that there's glory on the other side of this life. There's glory on the other side of death. There's glory on the other side of your suffering. And when you suffer temporarily, even though you suffer with Jesus, there's glory on the other side. So you may be going through suffering and think, well, I just don't know how long to go through this. Listen, you can always go further than you think. Would you know what's on the other side? For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the suffering of the cross because there was something ahead. When you're going through suffering, think of it as I'm giving birth to a child. I'm giving birth to a promise. I'm giving birth to a, a generation. I'm giving birth to a dream. I'm giving birth to salvation. I'm giving birth. And so as you're thinking about what the baby's going to be and look like and whose nose it's going to have, whose ears it's going to have and all that weird stuff, when you think about the baby, it'll help you endure the suffering. Last but not least, suffering with Jesus gives God all the glory. But suffering without Jesus gives God all the blame. When you suffer with Jesus, he receives all the glory. When you suffer without him, he just gets the blame. And I'll tell you, God will protect his glory at all costs. Romans 8.18 says this, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. You know, anyone can give God praise and glory on Sunday morning when everything's going right. 
Anybody can say God is good when you win the lottery. Anybody can say God is good when you won a Grammy or an Emmy or an Oscar. Anybody can say God is good when everything's going the way you want it to go. But it takes somebody who's trusting and submitted to the Father to be able to say, he's still good when you're going to hell in a handbasket. When you got a diagnosis from the doctor, it doesn't look good, you say, he's still good. See, it takes somebody who really trusts God in the middle of the storm that when everybody else is cursing God and dying, did you stand there with your hands lifted and say, he's still good. He still loves me unconditionally. He's still my father. He's still merciful. He's still a faithful high priest. He is still everything he said he is. He still is. My circumstances do not change God. My God changes my circumstances. And when that perspective comes, he receives the glory. Does God get more glory from you praising him in the storm or are you praising him from the mountaintop? I'll tell you, Job's sitting on the molehill my God is still good. And everybody's like, Job, come on, bro. Look, your family's dead. Your crops are burnt up. Your house is falling apart. It's time you just give up on this God thing. He said, no, my God's gonna get all the glory. He's still good. My Redeemer liveth. And as he kept keeping the glory of God at the forefront, God blessed him. Why? Because God protects his glory and he will bless where he finds his glory at even though it hurts. I saw on Instagram or something the other day, sort of how a pearl was formed. It talks about how a pearl is formed in a, in a clam. But that pearl is actually formed from trauma. Whether it's the intrusion of sand or gravel or a food particle that's not gotten out of the clam and it becomes like a scar. And so with the clam's response to protect itself is to begin using these two chemicals that surround that Thing, that intrusion, that trauma, and actually begin to encapsulate it to protect it from that trauma. And so what happens is when you see a clam, what you're actually seeing is a scar that's been made beautiful. What you're actually seeing is something that was meant to be negative or evil now giving beauty or glory. In the same way, when you go through suffering, it may feel like a scar, but if you allow the grace and mercy of God to cover it, it may still be a scar, but now it's a beautiful scar for other people to look at and see the glory of God. And I I think one of the things that the world is, is needing is more Christians that are like clams that say, I have scars too. I've been through some things too. I've been through some heartache too. I've been through some trauma too. I've been through some depression too. I've been through cancer too. I've been through it, but look at this pearl. And the only way you can see the pearl inside the clam is for the clam to open itself up. So the only way the world can see the glory of God through you is for you to actually open your life up. Quit trying to dress up the clamshell and pretend like everything's great. Quit trying to put on church clothes on a clamshell and open up the clamshell so people can see the scar that has been covered in the grace and mercy, grace and mercy, grace and mercy to create this beautifully polished pearl that shows off the glory of God. Why? Wow, that's the only option. The only other option is you blame God for the scar. Or you can let him turn it into a beautiful pearl. If you would, bow your head to close your eyes just for one quick second. You either suffer with Jesus or without him.
Either God will determine your view of suffering or your view of suffering will determine who God is to you. So I'm not going to have anybody stand up this morning. But there's going to be two things. One, maybe you experience suffering. You've been blaming God. You've been blaming God for your parents getting divorced. You've been blaming God for your mom or your dad or your grandparents passing away. You've been blaming God for a child that passed away too early. You've been blaming God for sickness and disease. You've been blaming God for whatever it is. You've been blaming God for your pain and suffering. I'm here to tell you, he cannot be the person you blame and the person who saves you out of the suffering. The only way you come out of that season and you can turn it into something beautiful is you just say, I'm going to suffer with Jesus. And he brings you in. We call it salvation. You die to self. You repent of blaming him. You repent of your own ways. And you confess that you need him. You're not blaming him. You confess that you need him. And he begins to cover you with grace and mercy. He covers you in the blood of Jesus to renew you and make you whole again. Every head is bowed, every head is closed. So that's me. I need, I need that fresh start today. I've been blaming God. I, I need to surrender to God and let him renew my life and to take my suffering and to give me something new for it. That's you. Just one private moment this morning. So that's me. I just want you to slip your hand up real quick. So that's me. pray for you in just a second, but I'm going to ask you to do me one thing. When you leave today, just please do me this one favor. Swing by Connection Point. Just say, hey, I raised my hand. When pastor asks people to raise their hands, they want to put a gift in your hand. They want to help you on the journey because it's not about just a moment of decision. It's about a lifelong journey with Jesus. We want to help you along that path. But Father, I thank you for these people. I thank you for the suffering servant, Jesus, who came to earth in human form just to suffer on our behalf. And so, Jesus, right now, I know you are a merciful and faithful high priest. And as these people raise their hands, Father, they're asking, they're repenting, they're confessing that you are Lord and Savior of all. I pray that you cover them in the blood of Jesus. Wash them of their sin. Wash them of their shame. Take what they're giving you, which is their life, and give them a new life in replace of that. Father, walk with them from this day forward through suffering, through pain, through it all to give you glory. In Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. If you would stand to your feet as we dismiss, finally our prayer team come forward. If you need prayer for anything, I know we say this every week, we believe in the power of agreement where the Bible says if two or three touch and agree, it shall be done for them. So if you need prayer for anything, maybe you're going through a season of suffering, you need somebody to encourage you and pray for you. Maybe you got a family member you want to pray for, come into Easter to be saved. They're going to be down front to pray for you. But Father, bless these, your people, with the promises of God, which are yes and amen in Christ. I pray as they leave here today, they leave on purpose, by your protection, with your provision, to see your promises be fulfilled in their lives. In the mighty name of Jesus, all God's people said, amen.